think also as you watch some cooperatives have great successes, you'll see others follow. This is episode 249 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Alyssa Clemson-Roberts is Vice President of Communications and Business Services for Pedernales Electric Cooperative. Pedernales serves a large region in central Texas. In this episode, Christopher gets some honest perspective from someone who could offer unique insight from the world of cooperatives. They discuss a range of issues, including new legislation from Tennessee and how it will affect cooperatives. Alyssa and Christopher also get into the challenges that cooperatives must consider when determining whether or not to offer connectivity to members. You can learn more about Pedernales at pec.coop. Now here's Alyssa Clemson-Roberts and Christopher talking about cooperatives and the challenges of deciding whether or not to offer connectivity. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm back with Alyssa Clemson-Roberts, the Vice President of Communication and Business Services for Pedernales Electric Co-op. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, so for people who have been longtime listeners, Alyssa has been on the show before, although she was not with uh, Pedernales before. Uh, Alyssa, you have a lot of experience working with rural utilities and thinking about broadband. Um, just uh, tell us a little bit about Pedernales. It's one of the nation's smaller electric co-ops, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yes, it is actually the nation's largest electric cooperative. Um, we have about 289,000 meters at this point. Last year, we added 12,000 meters, so we will hit the 300,000 meter mark this year. And for those of you who don't know, 12,000 meters is about the size of an average cooperative. Yeah, we're <laughs> adding basically a co-op every year. And our territory spans, it's its almost the size of the state of Massachusetts, to put it in perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think three out of four of the municipal electric companies have 7,500 meters or something like that. So you guys... You're, you're, you're almost like Amazon. You're not only growing, you're growing faster than everything else. Yes, it is an incredible rate of growth, which is a good set of challenges, but creates challenges nonetheless. Right. Now, Pedernales itself is not getting into broadband anytime soon, uh, but I wanted to bring you back on for a candid conversation about uh, some of the challenges, the realistic discussion about what's happening with co-ops as uh, they are considering uh, building a network. Um, you know, I, not to say that we haven't had realistic discussions before, but Alyssa, I've always enjoyed your um, kind of unvarnished, um, I'm going to tell it to you straight kind of approach. Um, but we have a, a, some break news that we can cover as well, uh, what's happening in Tennessee. So maybe we'll start there. Um, you know, Tennessee's about to sign this bill. What are you thinking about uh, this bill about rural broadband in Tennessee? Well, I think the fact that they finally um, taken the handcuffs off electric cooperatives in Tennessee is fantastic. I know that there are several uh, co-ops in Tennessee that have been talking about this for the last couple of years, but they've kind of been living in this world of uncertainty. You know, if I do this, will the legislature, you know, slap me down later? Um, if I do this, am I going to make this investment and then find that I'm not allowed to do this, which, you know, you've seen municipal electrics have that situation. So, I mean, they've been, been really living in kind of a world of uncertainty, wanting to provide this service to their members, but just, you know, cautious. And there's, there's not anything wrong with being cautious. So I think that was a big win. Um, the idea, though, that that munis aren't able to come out beyond their boundaries and serve 
unserved, you know, folks in rural America is it's a sad day for Tennessee, for sure. Right. Now, in in Tennessee, the law uh, that was prohibiting uh, your electric co-ops from doing uh, fiber was really at odds with federal law and arguably actually um, in violation of federal law. It would have been struck down if the co-ops had wanted to make a big court case about it. But uh, I think the co-ops were more focused on what they could do locally rather than having to hire lawyers and get involved in a protracted legal dispute. That, that really is the issue. So do you want cooperatives spending money to fight this in the courts, or do you want cooperatives saying, hey, let's put our resources into our communities and actually build a network? So I think that, again, was a win for the co-ops, because now they can put their resources where they choose to instead of, again, ending up in a large legal battle with these, you know, behemoth for-profit corporations that, you know, they're good at this, and, and they don't mind spending a ton of money on it. So... I think that's the equalizer, though, when you talk about electric cooperatives and big telco, big cable. I always say they have the money and the lobbyists, but we have the people. And that matters. I I think that's right. Now, I I just wanted to note for people that have been following our website and maybe our press releases where we've gotten a lot of coverage, we've been just blasting this law coming out of Tennessee, which the governor is still expected to sign as we are recording the show. It probably will have signed by the time it airs uh, because of that limitation of the electric uh, municipal providers, because it just it doesn't make any sense. But I am very excited that co-ops will be able to expand with fiber. Uh, The last thing I wanted to cover, though, was this kind of intrigue about whether or not they would be allowed to offer television services. And and I thought you could tell us a little bit about why that's important, um, because it seemed like uh, it almost was lost in the larger discussion about uh, broadband. Well, it is. And the thing about the television services, I think you're seeing, so a newer generation, the younger generation, and they're younger than I am, but they're cutting that cord when it comes to cable. They're going to a pure digital format and, And they're fine with that. But then everyone else is still kind of like, man, I really like my cable TV. And so when you take that option off the table, it is very hard to get folks to sign up for your broadband service. So by inserting that prohibition initially, you are basically crippling the cooperatives or limiting their take rates or making it much, much harder to make these projects feasible, as AT&T very well knows. Because when they made the argument with the FCC that they should be allowed to sell direct TV, that was their exact argument. So it's kind of ironic that their own argument came back to bite them. It's not the only time that could happen. So I'm glad that it, it does happen from time to time. And it's worth noting, of course, that you know, AT&T owns a lot of rural areas by virtue of the fact that they own direct TV. And so for them trying to stop the co-ops from providing television services is just yet another way in which they're trying to establish a monopoly basically for their own services. Yes. Well, and it's funny because every time you see this crop up in a state legislature, it comes out like it's, you know, a four broadband competition bill. But as you read the bill, it becomes, you know, very, very obvious that all they're trying to do is hold on to their monopoly. Now, let's talk about some of the the challenges and some of the reasoning that happens when a co-op is thinking about whether or not to uh, get into the fiber game. Uh, One of the things that that you've identified is just the comfort level with where they are. Uh, You have an entity that has done a good job providing electricity. Um, And and in fact, um, we have actually been passing a book around our office uh, talking about rural electrification and the early co-ops. And it is amazing how much better they were than the private companies uh, and 
a few areas in which private companies deigned to invest in rural areas. So these are rural electrics that have done a, a really good job of providing service in, in hard to reach areas. Um, you know, I may criticize them from time to time with power, long-term power purchase agreements on coal, but the fact is the lights generally stay on and, and they're very comfortable in that business area. Yeah, and I think that is a big issue, and it's something that we talk about a lot um, in the co-op world. We went from kind of this, I mean, you think about in the 1930s when, in 1940s, when rural electric cooperatives started providing service. I mean, this was a territory, again, no one wanted to serve. For-profit electric companies were like, can't be done, won't be done, and kept, you know, providing all these obstacles to make this happen. Rural groups got together, you know, rural community leaders, and they said, we're going to do this. We're going to take this risk. So we have kind of gone from this, you know, high risk, high reward model that we originally created into a very comfortable, low risk, still high reward, but low risk model. And so I think when you, you make that transformation over time, I think it's hard to go, wow, we've got a lot at stake here. And I, I think you're also talking about in terms of investment, some of these investments into fiber will equal or outpace what the cooperative has invested in electric infrastructure. And I think that causes a moment of pause too. And then you have the second idea that should uh, ratepayer funds for electricity be used to provide broadband service and be used to make those initial investments into infrastructure. I think the cooperatives that are doing broadband right now have done a very good job of kind of segmenting that saying, you know, we're going to use our, our good credit and our good faith as the electric cooperative to leverage for funding, but your rates will not be subsidizing the broadband business. Instead, they've kind of taken this model where they're almost utilizing their broadband service to help sub subsidize, you know, the electric side of the business to keep rates low. So again, I think it's one of those decisions where you have, you know, companies that are so stable and so comfortable, it's very hard for them to go out into this world that is very competitive, very cutthroat, you know, you watch every other day, we're watching a poll attachment bill pop up across the country. You know, you watch trying to limit cooperative broadband, trying to limit municipal broadband. I think it's this also, do you want to poke that bear? Do you want to get into a dogfight with these large corporations? And I, I think it's something that cooperatives have to weigh, but Sometimes I worry that they weigh too much into that. It's something that is very complicated. And, and although when I weigh a lot of those complications and I try to think about it neutrally from the perspective of a person living in these areas, I generally think the, the co-op should be at the minimum seriously considering it and penciling out the numbers and maybe just starting in the areas where it looks best. But um, I want to pull out a couple of things that you said and and just dive into them quick. I think one is recognizing that uh, this is riskier than electricity. It is. The demand for electricity um, was eventually much greater. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it was immediately, but, um, you know, in, in rural areas that where co-ops are doing this, I think we're seeing take rates in initial areas, you know, it's sort of in the in the low 40s to the upper 60s, depending on the territory. And I think electricity take rates were higher um, in the time when that was introduced. Yes, that, that would be correct. I would say, you know, we talk about the low 40s, low 60s, and that being lower. That's a pretty good take rate. It is, <laughs> when right. When you're talking right. about telecommunications <laughs> service. And again, you have to kind of adjust your thinking. You know what I'm saying? You have to adjust what you're modeling this on. So yeah, it's, it's worth noting that that, that is true. But again, it's, it's out of our area of expertise. It's out of our comfort zone. And I, I think that's a hard thing. But 
I come back to every day another cooperative is doing a study, is taking a look at this. And I think it's going to continue to grow. We're, we're seeing an incredible amount of retirements in our industry. Um, I, I think if I were two years, three years, four years from retirement, I would have a hard time making a decision to explore something like this. Yes. It's hard to make those decisions when you're going to leave this for someone else. So I think as we continue to see our industry change and evolve and these large amount of retirements, and I think also as you watch some cooperatives have great successes, Midwest Energy up in Michigan, Como in Missouri, Barco Electric down in Virginia. I mean, you've got this wide variety of cooperatives that are really succeeding. I think you'll see others follow, but they just want to be sure. Right. I've been saying that I feel like this is a, a viral spread. And, and I got some of this from talking with John Chambers at Connexon, um, where it seems like, and I see this in municipal broadband as well, where if you live in a small community and no one for 100 miles around you has good internet access, you're okay. You're kind of like, you know, everyone's kind of upset, frustrated, want something better, but but you're not losing businesses and at the same rate, whereas if 30 miles away, you can get very high quality internet access, then suddenly you're in a situation where you have to do something. And I think that as we see a few of these rural electric co-ops doing it across their entire footprints, it's just going to put pressure on those around them to do it because otherwise we're going to see population shifts. And that's a real threat to the existence of the cooperative, which if electricity demand declines, then they're really going to be in a, in a bad spiral. I absolutely agree. And, and I think even those that don't have someone next to them doing this, we are seeing population shifts already. I mean, I think it was 2010, the census had for the first time um, showed that there was a decline in population in rural America. Um, they attributed this to a number of factors. You know, kids grow up, they go to college, they leave their community they can't find jobs back in their community. So what do they do? They move to the city. They move to suburbia. They move to another community that has jobs available. Uh, baby boomers are retiring. They used to retire in droves back to rural America. They are not retiring back to rural America now. Why? Because they're used to having these services. They want access to the internet. They want to be able to see their grandkids. They want to be able to communicate with them. They want to be able to read the news online. They want to be able to watch Netflix. When you take all of these things into place, you're going to continue to see those shifts. Absolutely. But I think it's coming everywhere. I don't think it's just going to be in those areas where the next door has it. I think we're going to continue to see that shift throughout all of rural America. It's a ripple effect. It may be more obvious when 30 miles down the road you've got it, but I think everybody's feeling it right now. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. Um, but I, I do think that we'll see more motivation perhaps in areas that face that immediate neighbor. Oh, absolutely. We agree. We're just saying, you know, we're kind of emphasizing different aspects of it. Um, but, yeah. But as we, I want to talk a little bit about the financial challenges. And I, I'll set this up by noting that a di another difference is that when we established the rural electric cooperatives, they got um, uh, territory and they got a monopoly on that territory. Having a monopoly on services in a territory enables you to get financing in ways that you cannot get if you are a competitor, even if you're competing against a very weak uh, large company that has terrible customer service, it may be difficult to get financing. 
Now, some cooperatives may be able to leverage their electric base uh, as security for financing. Um, and some may choose not to do that. Some may be prevented from doing that, I'm guessing, because, for instance, if you're buying power from the Tennessee Valley Authority, I don't think they'll let you um, just cross-subsidize in that way. So um, so I, as we talk about financing, let me know, did I sum that up fairly correctly? You're absolutely right. It is a big issue. And again, some are not willing to do it um, and some are not able. And I think there's also this idea of, um, you know, it's a little bit riskier. So the interest rates go up and, you know, every time the interest rate goes up, it makes the loan or the investment a little less feasible. And I think you're also seeing some power struggles at this point, even within RUS and where they can finance and how they can finance. And then you've got, you know, CoBank and CFC as alternatives and other, other funding mechanisms. But traditionally, co-ops, we, we borrow from RUS. But now you've got this conundrum because the rural telcos borrow from RUS too. Yeah, and, and we're seeing real efforts by some of the rural telcos to say that it is unfair for them to have to, um, you know, compete with a rural electric company. And so, you know, there's there's one instance in which I, I can't divulge who it is because they've wanted to keep it quiet, but there's an electric company that's building out to its territory and it got some rural utility service funds to use in that territory, um, maybe for smart grid, maybe for broadband. I'm not entirely aware of it, but the point is they decided to expand to a nearby development that was not in their territory and is not getting any access to the RUS funds, but they were nearby and they really wanted service from the electric co-op. And so the electric co-op decided to go ahead and do it. Rural telephone company, very upset about this and saying it was totally unfair. Um, And so trying to basically push RUS to stop giving money to rural electrics for broadband. Um, And so you have, unfortunately, I think two different entities that both care about rural America kind of um, going at it with one of the few sources of money that is out there. I would move your kind of to two rural entities, one of whom who kind of cares about rural America. <laughs> well, um, some of these rural I, telephone I, companies... I'm pretty vocal on this. Right, no, and, and, yes. and feel free. I mean, like, I, I want to be totally honest. If you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. It's the only way I'm going to learn. Uh, some of these rural um, telephone companies are telephone cooperatives, though. And and like any other entity, there are good apples and bad apples. Uh, but it is not just like... We're not talking about CenturyLink. I absolutely agree. And this is the thing. There are some rural telcos who have done a great job of reinvesting the taxpayer funds back into their networks to provide good service. I absolutely agree with that. But there are many who have not been taking that subsidy from the state and from the federal government, all of which is funded by you and me and every other person in this country as a line item on our phone bill. And they have not been reinvesting. In fact, I would love for someone to take a look at how much money these rate of return carriers have gotten from the state and the federal government and plot out what that would have built in terms of fiber network. Oh, I and so want to do that. It's, not, it's so hard. Yeah, it's it, so hard to get this money, this information. It's just ridiculous. Yes, it is. And they make it hard for a reason. And I will tell you, having looked at this from um, a couple different state perspectives, you'll probably want to take a shower when you're done reading yeah. because what they could have done with this funding is incredible. And I, I will say to these folks, first of all, fair is fair. The fair comes to town once a year. We're all grown ups. Let's move on. <laughs> and second of all, had you been providing affordable, competitive service, 
we wouldn't be looking anywhere near you to provide service because that's not what we do. But you don't get to cherry pick the areas that have some density and provide to them and leave everybody else behind because we are going to come and compete with you in those areas because that's how we further fund rolling out into those areas that you have left behind for years and years and years. So my advice to the rate of return carriers is much as the same as my advice to the price cap carriers. Do it, provide the good service, provide affordable service, and you won't have any problem with us. But if you're going to continue to collect money from our members and from rural America and from everybody else in this country and not provide the service, well, you should know we're probably coming for you. Now, it's, it's worth just noting that when you say rate of return carriers, you're generally talking about the smaller providers, the price cap carriers, or the big companies uh, you know, from Frontier and CenturyLink, AT&T, those sorts of folks, just for people who aren't as familiar with those terms. Yes. Electric cooperatives are not federally subsidized. We get low interest loans, but it's not a grant giving handout where they've rolled up money from, from rural America and from urban America and said, here, we're going to redistribute this pot of money for this. Forever. Right, forever. Our loan programs are fully paid for by the interest that we pay on these loans. And so there's this whole idea that, you know, it's not fair. And again, I would say, if you're providing the service, we don't want any part of it. You you know, you've provided it. But when you look at this country and you go, okay, four in 10 rural Americans don't have service, somebody's not providing the service and taking the money. And that's a problem. And this is where I get in my my sort of um, small government proper financial approach hat. And, and and I get frustrated at how government programs have been designed historically because with electricity there was this sense of we're going to be fiscally responsible and we're going to we're going to give capital loans. Um, you know, perhaps there was uh, or there was some level of subsidy um, in the in the early years. I, I don't know nearly whether or not the loans are below market anymore. They were a little bit below market to begin for the electric co-ops, but there was never a sense that there would be ongoing subsidies for electricity. With telephone, there always has been. And in part, it's because of higher operating costs. When you subsidize crappy technology like DSL in rural areas, is that you are locking in a high operating cost, which then also has to be subsidized. And so if you look at over 10 years of what we're going to get with 10 megabit by 1 megabit DSL from AT&T or CenturyLink or whatever, we're going to be paying far more for that than it would have cost to do fiber. Because with fiber, you no longer need that operating subsidy in most cases. Yes, that's absolutely right. I would include the rate of return carriers in that argument. Again, I would say look at their funding levels. How much have they been getting and have they been building their business on what's best for rural America? Or have they been building their business based on this rate of return model, this idea that the more you spend, the more you get, and not necessarily making you know good economic decisions with the best interests of their members and or customers at heart? So let's turn to one of the uh, one of the challenges that I think is going to be facing um, co-ops, co-ops like yourself at, at Pedernales, if you ever were to go into this, which is um, when you have a population split across suburbs, exurbs, and then perhaps farmers, um, just to simplify uh, rural, uh, really spread out um, member owners of the cooperative. Um, it seems to me that we are seeing some conflicts between co-ops where a board might be dominated by suburban interests a little bit more and less willing to invest in connecting everyone. And I fear that we may see the co-op, some co-ops, lose that sense of what brought them together in the first place, which was to make sure that the needs of everyone were ultimately met. 
Yeah, I could see that being a problem. That's kind of the the unique aspect of, of PEC. Um, our board is split up um, geographically and they've drawn the line. So we have a pretty good balance, I think, on our board of rural interests and then our more maybe suburban, you know, slash urban interests. So we aren't seeing that. What we're kind of seeing is this is a large investment. Parts of our territory um, are really well served. I have Google Fiber in my home and I'm a PEC member. And let me tell you, love the Google. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> just keep it's rubbing fantastic. it in. Yeah, rub it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the problem is, is you have to have some of this to be able to help subsidize as you head west in our territory. I mean, on this side of our territory, we're very dense. You know, there's a lot of population. There's a lot of business. But as you move west across our territory, we get down to one in two homes per mile. No one can make that feasibly work on a standalone project. And that becomes a little bit of a problem, too, because you need this area where I live in southwest Austin, you know, into Dripping Springs in this central Texas area. You need this to help make the other feasible. And so it becomes harder and harder as we continue to watch big providers cherry pick. And that's I would say to Google, I think it's fantastic that you're providing broadband service, you know, in these. We we just lost all audio. I don't know if you can still hear me. Arr. Was it your end or my end? No, no, no. It was, it was our end, our entire office. Again, this is the second time in a row that Comcast has disconnected us. We've had to reboot our business class service. Um, it happened right after you were talking about how great your Google connection is, it's worth noting. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but this is... Which is so funny. I joked with you that maybe it was AT&T because I keep messing with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is just standard run-of-the-mill dealing with Comcast in a business environment. Oh, yeah. Once every day. It seems like lately we get disconnected uh, and we have to reboot the old modem. Um, so at some point I'm going to have to call them, at which point they'll explain to me that it's something on my end, I'm sure. Um, you know, yes. Although <laughs> for some reason it's their modem that I have to reboot. We've rebooted every other piece of networking equipment. Um, with that aside, which I hope Lisa keeps in the show, you were just describing <laughs> um, you know, um, the challenges of expanding west uh, given your um, uh, the, the, the cost when you get down to the low densities. Yes. Well, and that's the thing with Google Fiber that I had kind of gotten off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth exploring. So, you know, Google is this great company, right? You know, they basically challenged the status quo that you, you know, people don't want fiber. People do want fiber. So I would say to Google, and I'm going to challenge them openly, why don't you keep exploring West? You've done this in this suburban and urban setting, and you're having some successes. Why don't you do something truly revolutionary and continue to press this model and push west. It's great that they can do it, you know, when you've got 40 and 50 and 60 homes per mile, but why don't you keep rolling west for us and provide some great service? Because I think that the model has been proven over and over and over again. I'd love to see Google take on that challenge and do something truly revolutionary because what they've done in in urban and suburban America isn't really revolutionary, but do something really cool. It does seem to be over though, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's been a number of people that have argued that, yeah, that would be revolutionary up here in, in Minnesota. I've seen a number of people in rural areas that were willing to do whatever it would take if Google would prove that uh, there was a business case for building out to them, um, which as you well, know- And they don't even have to prove it. The co-ops have proved it. 
so they get to take credit again for something that you know <laughs> been proven. Right. Although it's worth noting, and this is something I think that we we can't emphasize enough that um, a business case is different for business to business. A business case for a co-op um, is is different in that the co-op wants to break even. A business case for AT and T is that it has to make a killing. It's not enough just to be a little bit profitable. Its shareholders are expecting increasing profit over time. So um, it's just it's worth noting for people that this is one of the reasons why that we see co-ops being so successful in rural America, because it's the right tool for the right job. No, I absolutely agree. And it's I think it's the, the argument to hear this a lot. It's too expensive to do it in rural America. And I think your point is well taken. It's not that it's too expensive. It's that your rate of return isn't enough. And there's a big difference between being too expensive and you can't make enough money off of it. And and I would agree that, you know, a for-profit company um, has different factors to, to take into account. But I would also argue that as a large corporation in this country, you have an obligation. And I think that obligation extends at times beyond your shareholders. It extends to the, the betterment and the good of America as a whole. Not everything is a bottom line. Right. And we certainly, you know, it's certainly a discussion that is popping up uh, again and again. Um, interestingly, I was, I was reading a book about a history of sort of monopoly and economics. It was called, it's uh, Railroad Economics by Perlman, I think. Um, it's kind of a, a leftist um, economics case for why we don't need economics because a lot of economists tend to be like just sellouts that just defend the power structure no matter what. Um, I actually really like the tools economics provides, but um, I'm I'm getting a a little bit deep just to make this point that, well, literally 100 years ago, as we had the economy becoming taken over by large trusts and and monopolies, there was a sense that if you had a monopoly, you had an obligation to do more than just figure out how to do well for your shareholders. Um, That that was called welfare capitalism, I think, was um, the term that was used in this case. And um, I, I have to say, I didn't find it particularly persuasive, but it's a heck of a lot better if you have monopoly, if they are going to be doing something good. You know, it's kind of like if we can't do anything about AT&T, well, we certainly can't live with them just screwing us constantly. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is when our phone goes dead again. Right, right. <laughs> well, um, I've really enjoyed the, the conversation. And so I, I really appreciate your time once again um, to talk about some of these these issues. And I think, you know, uh, for people that are still trying to figure out what's going on in rural America, I hope this helps. Yeah, I think it's um, vitally important to that the economy of our country. Imagine if we hadn't electrified rural America. Or what if we'd said to rural America, you can only have two hours of power, or you can only have enough power to do this or this. Would we be the great nation that we are? And I think we're at that tipping point with broadband. I think it's vital to the economic interests of our nation that that we have this opportunity for for everyone. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And I would, you know, it's interesting because it's a, if electricity didn't reach all of America, um, it's possible electricity wouldn't be as important to us. Uh, we may have evolved in different directions with um, uh, the way markets work and things like that. But by creating much larger markets, uh, we certainly uh, led to advancements more quickly uh, because we had yeah. increased productivity. And if we don't expand high quality internet access to everyone, we won't be able to take full advantage of a high quality internet, you know, um, it will not be as good if we deny it to certain people. So um, there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we need to keep in mind as we're deciding how to connect folks or whether to cut them off effectively. Thank you so much. I hope you have a, a great weekend. 
Thanks. You too, Chris. That was Christopher and Alyssa Clemson-Roberts, Vice President of Communications and Business Services for Pedernales Electric Cooperative in Texas. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Break the Bands for the song Escape, licensed through Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 249 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.